As I came back from vacation, actually it was a little later in February because of the storm, I felt the Lord began to deal with me about how I reacted to situations. Um, I'm the kind of person that, that generally I process things, and sometimes I'll process them out loud, sometimes I'll, some things I don't process out loud. And the Lord began to deal with me about how I was handling certain situations because of the influence that it had on my wife and other people around me uh, as I, the way I did it. And he was calling my attention to the fact that, kind of in line with what we've just heard, is that I'm not alone, I'm not in a vacuum. The things I say, the things I do, even though I'm working them through in myself, are affecting people that are around me. And God began to deal with me about that in terms of the time that we're in. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1. But know this. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemies, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people, turn away. But drop down to verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving being deceived, and you must continue in the things which you've learned, being assured of and knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, but for reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. If, you, if we never needed any kind of reminder... This week certainly has been that the world we live in has become a dangerous place. If we've ever wondered whether there's what perilous times are, this week has brought home to us that we are living in perilous times. Places that we've assumed and grown up and thought were safe. Places of public assembly, the Boston Marathon finish line people's homes, churches. People are walking into churches and just shooting now. Places that we've always grown and assumed were safe, we're discovering they're not safe at all anymore. It's interesting because right after the bombing at the Boston Marathon, I was looking on uh, on a, a, a website I have that just the news, and it has pictures of 
the, devasta- the bomb and the devastation there and the suffering. And right below it was a picture of a bomb that had gone off in Syria. And I realized quickly looking down, I couldn't tell which was Syria and which was Boston. Whereas before, you know, I'd look at those things that go off in other parts of the world, third world countries, and you just kind of, well, that's what they're like. They're very unsettled. It's very unrestful. It's not good. We don't like to see that, but it's kind of understandable there. And here we saw a place that's 60 miles away from us, a place very near where I used to work, that's right mixed in with the same kind of news. We live in very perilous times. Perilous to our physical safety. There are germs out there now that they're telling us that, that, that our antibiotics can't touch. There's super, super bacterias and super viruses out there. And, and, and we hear of these threats. And the question is, how do we live in those kind of times? But there's even more that's happening in, in this, our life that we're in right now, the world that we're in right now. It's not just physical threats out there standards and things that I grew up in and most of us have grown up in, just having our society accepts them, whether they were Christians or not, mm-hmm. we're finding out are no longer not, not just not accepted, they're being challenged. Mm-hmm. And people and, and, and politicians and, and, and institutions that have stood in spite of that pressure are beginning to cave in. And every day I pick it up and find out someone, someone new has come out and said, well, I'm now going to support gay marriage. Even the Boy Scouts are now uh, beginning to, to face compromise. I begin to realize if everybody else is caving in, where does that leave us? So we're living in not only times that are perilous physically, but we're living in times that are very perilous spiritually. And I ask the question that God's put in my woke me up in the middle of the night, uh, Tuesday, uh, Monday night, and, and dropped in me this question, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to live your life? How are we as Christian men going to live our life in these perilous times? Well, that depends to some degree on how you see yourself. I suggest to you that God's call... Well, let's put it this way. If you see yourself as just somebody that's here in life and your purpose in life is to survive and get through... And then what you're going to do is you're going to look at these issues and find out, what do I have to do to survive? How am I going to get through? That's really the reaction that the world has as you listen to the news and you listen to the message that's behind it. The questions they raise are, how are we going to survive? What are we going to do? And the goal of this is all, how are we going to survive in this world? But the Bible teaches us that we're not to think the way the world thinks. And we're not to react to situations the way the world reacts, but we are to respond based on what God, who God says we are and what God says we are to do. We've been learning in Faith Christian Center on Sunday morning that God, in, in God's kingdom there are principles by which he's established his kingdom. And that Satan came into the garden and to pervert those, kingdom, those principles and reverse them and make them focus on ourselves. And you and I have grown up in a world and a society that's ingrained, those, those, that way of thinking is ingrained in us. So it's almost natural to us to get into the flow of what the news is saying. It's almost natural to, for us to get into the flow of what the world is thinking and what the world's goal is, which again is to survive. How are we going to make it through? But if we look at what the Word of God says, we realize that God has put us here. God's not taken, surprise, taken by surprise by what's happened. 
And yet God has ordained you and me to be born in, to grow up in, to be saved in this exact time, these perilous times. And I suggest to you that the choice we have is we can either look at life the way the world looks at it, where our goal is how are we going to survive, how am I going to build, you know, when I was growing up, the threat was nuclear war from Russia. And the big thing then was to have bomb shelters in your, in your backyard, you know. And the whole mentality of that is how am I going to save me and my household. But I suggest to you that we are called not just to, be, to live in these times, but we're called to lead in these times. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is how, as Christian men, do we not just survive in perilous times, but how do we lead in perilous times? And it really starts by how you see yourself. Am I just a man who is here and my goal is to get out of life whatever I can? (laughs) When I was a lawyer, I saw a bumper sticker where I worked and... It was actually in the back of one of the senior partners in the firm, and the, the bumper sticker, which reflected his life, by the way, was, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> and that very much was his mentality, because it was stuck on the back of his, Merce- of his Maserati. Um, and, and, and yeah, he could afford these things, but that was really his full focus in life, was what do you have, what have you succeeded, what have you attained to? And the question to me is, have we adopted the standard of the world and the goal of the world? That the success as a Christian means how much I have, what position have I attained to, what prestige do I have, how do other people look at me? But I suggest to you that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus did. And so is your goal to get out, get through and just survive? Is your goal to get out of life as much as you can? Is your goal in life to be as happy as you can? There's nothing wrong with being happy. But is that your goal? Is your goal in life to be as safe and secure as you can? Because that's a goal the world offers to us. But I suggest to you that's not the goal that Christians are called to. So do you see yourself that way? Or do I see myself more this way? That God has put me here at this time for a purpose. Kind of like Queen Esther came to the conclusion. When she was presented with a crisis... She didn't ask to be put in that position, but she found herself in a position of favor as the favorite of the king and in a position of, of, of tremendous influence that she never was looking for. And her whole focus at that time was, I didn't want to be here. How do I survive? What do I have to do? And her uncle came to her and said, your people are in danger of being exterminated. Yes. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And the reaction is, well, what can I do? I'm just a woman And he said what she needed to do. And she was afraid to do it. But Mordecai pointed out to her, perhaps, perhaps you've been put in this position, this perilous, for such a time as this. And we need to decide how, whether we're going to live our lives for ourselves or perhaps God has put us here as men. Because we, as men, we influence people. We affect people's lives. And perhaps God has put us here exactly at this time just because we are in perilous times. 
perfectly natural for us to try to avoid the peril. It's perfectly natural for us to avoid the conflict. It's perfectly, perfectly natural to us, just like Esther, to not want to get involved in those things. But it's not about what we want. It's not about what makes me comfortable. It's about why God has put me here. And, why God, and, and the people that God has put me here to affect and to influence. God knew what these times were going to be like when He knew you were going to be born. The Bible tells us that He saw your birth before the foundation of the world, that your times were appointed by Him. And so what it is, I suggest to you, it's time for us to decide as men and as Christian men in our churches why we are here, why we're living our lives here. As I said, the difference between the world's reaction to these situations and the churches, the world reacts in fear, in panic, and in self-protection. But the church is called to respond in these times as an example and as a light in the darkness. Jesus told us we are to be lights in the darkness. And this is the time when the light should shine the brightest. I believe that as Christian men, we are called to be leaders. What is a leader? There are many books out there. There There are many studies out there, many great seminars out there about leadership. But I really believe it boils down to two basic things. It, first of all, means you're an example. You're an example wherever you go. I've made myself to be very conscious that as a pastor, I'm an example not just when I'm in church, but I'm an example when I'm standing in line at Starbucks and that person in front of me has made that mistake over and over again, and I'm in a hurry to get somewhere. I can't just react in my flesh because there are people around me that may know that I'm a pastor and may, I may influence them. And I've, what, I've, what I've learned to do is not just do that when I'm in public. It's to learn to do that when I'm at home and there's nobody at home. Because that's what integrity is. Integrity is not just doing something because other gonna, people are going to see it. Integrity is acting outwardly in public what you're already doing in private and at home. Otherwise, we're lying to people. And so that's what we're called to do. We're called to be leaders. So a leader, first of all, sets an example. And the other thing a leader basically does is show others the way to somewhere or through something. To me, Moses is a great example of that. Moses was called by God to take a nation of somewhere around two to five million people, somewhere that they weren't sure they wanted to go, complained about getting there, and got mad at him because they were going the place that they had that God God wanted them to go. But Moses was a great example of a leader because Moses, when the people came and complained to him, Moses went to his source, which was God. And so Moses is an example of an effective leader. He is very conscious of his responsibility to take these people that God had entrusted to him somewhere where they didn't necessarily want to go. And that was his calling in life. And I suggest to you that as a Christian man, that whether you have a family or not, you are called as a leader because you are influencing people by your example and by the direction and goal of your life. And especially in these kinds of times. I remember as a, when my, our, our youngest 
children who were sure twin boys when one of them was about six months of age. He st- stumbled and fell. Like he, he was a little older than him. He's just learning to work, walk. Stumbled and fell and hit himself. Not seriously, but bumped his head on the floor, on the carpet. And he looked to me to tell him how, he react, how to react. He hit his head, and instead of just immediately crying, he looks up at his father to interpret what this meant. And my reaction to that situation told him a message. And I watched what he was doing, and I realized the moment, and I realized here's an opportunity to, to impart into this young boy a lesson of life about how to handle a bumping of your head. So instead of panicking and rushing in, oh, you okay, you know, and patting his head, I just swooped him up, said, you know, it's okay, and went right on. My example of how I reacted to that situation was teaching him something as an example. That's a tiny little example, but the way you and I react to the news that we're hearing, the way we talk about it in our families, the way we talk about it at work, if we just get picked, caught up in what is going on on CNN and Fox News, if we get and just repeat everything we say, what kind of example, what are we being an example of? We're simply reflecting to those God has put in our sphere of influence. We're reflecting to them what the world already believes. I suggest to you we are called to shine a light into their world into this perilous time. I want to show you just an example of this, what it means to be a leader. In Hebrews chapter 6, it uses the great example of leadership, which is Jesus himself. Verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters in the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner, that's Jesus, has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus ordered his life and everything he did, conscious that he was a forerunner going before us, to make a way for us. And in fact, isn't that what Jesus refers to himself as? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he went on before us as a leader to make a way for us and then lived his life as an example for us. So we can now follow his leading into that way. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Unlike Lafayette, we're going to get all over the Bible today. So he gave you a rest so that you could... uh, and then maybe he'll take you back to resting this afternoon. We'll see. Now here's Paul writing to us as men. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me. In other words, Paul saw himself as an example. He saw himself as a leader that affected and influenced the people that he had met and the people that he knew. Imitate me, but notice this. As I also imitate Christ. So you've got to be careful who you're imitating. You've got to be careful who you're allowing as a leader and to influence your life. Because whatever's influencing them is what's going to influence you. So choose your leaders well. Choose those that you're allowing to speak into your life. And as I've been teaching the congregation on Wednesday night about renewing your mind, be careful where the sources of your thoughts are. 
Because when all you do is leave CNN on and Fox News on or whatever it is and just let it run over and over and over and over and over again, you're allowing ungodly men and ungodly people to sow seed into your mind and into your heart. You're allowing them to influence the way you think. There's nothing wrong with knowing what's going on. We need to know what's going on. But as I've shared with you before, once you've heard it once, the first time you hear it, it's news. The second time they say it is no longer news. And so we only need to listen to this over and over again. So choose who you is your leader well, because whatever influencing them is what is going to influence you. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. Now we read that quickly and think, yeah, I'm the head of a woman, I'm the head of my household. But understand what the word head means there. It means protection. But more than that, in the context he's talking about there, it means example. And what he's saying there is, men, you are to be an example to your wife. And the where, you, where you get your example from is Christ. And where he got his example from was God the Father. So as Christ imitated the Father, as the Father was his head, so Christ is being your head, your role is to imitate him. And if you imitate him, your wife, get the, what this is going to be like. Because Christ perfectly imitates the Father. If we will imitate Christ then our wife will begin to imitate us. And it ought to work this way, that if I'm doing my role correctly, someone ought to be able to look at my wife and they ought to see what God the Father's like because that role of imitation has come down. But the point of Paul's writing here and the reason we're looking at this morning is to recognize that as a man, you are a leader and you influence the lives and the attitudes of people around you whether you want to or not, you are influencing people. Because if you don't choose to influence them the right way, you will influence them the wrong way because you are influencers, because you are men. Each of us is a leader of someone. And we're all responsible to influence people who are within the sphere that God has given to us. I want to read to you briefly here a simple quote. I've started to read a book, a biography of a a tremendous um, uh, uh, missionary named Hudson Taylor. And this I found in the foreword. This is a quote from uh, great man of prayer, Ian Bounds. And this just so hit me. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery, and we could say today technology, or better and not new organizations or more, or not novel methods, but what the church needs are men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men, uh, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not come upon machinery, I'll add today technology, but he comes upon men. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men. Men 
of prayer. The training of the twelve was the great and difficult and enduring work of Christ. It is not great talents or great learning or great preachers that God needs, but men great in holiness, great in faith, great in love, great in fidelity, great for God. Men always preaching by holy sermons in the pulpit, but by holy lives lived out that can mold a generation for God. That's who we are. That's who we are as men. All right. What do we need to do to do this? How, what do we need to do to develop as leaders, as men of God, who are correctly influencing others in perilous times? I believe the first thing that we must do is, first of our step, first step is to accept the call of a leader. Teach a course, and I'm about to teach it actually, on understanding ministry, and I get into the, to what what the call is, and it's really simple. If you've got a cell phone, you understand what a call is. It's when somebody decides they want to reach you and give you a message. But just because they call you doesn't mean you have to answer. There are two sides to this. God chooses who He's going to call and to what He's calling them, but it's our choice as an act of our will whether we accept that call. What I've discovered, though, is there's a responsibility that goes with that call, and I'm accountable for that call whether I answer it or not. I can choose to put God on hold. I can choose to just hang up. But I'm still responsible for the call. So the first step with being a leader in perilous times is simply accepting the call. It's choosing to live your life for the benefit of others and not to please yourself. So it's not just simply saying, all right, God, I accept the role of a leader. The way you answer that call is by beginning to do something. And it starts with the attitude of how you see yourself. Romans chapter 15. Verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear the King James, New King James says scruples, but the other translations say the weaknesses of those who are weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to their edification, their building up. For even Christ did not please himself, for as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the, Holy, of the Scriptures might have a hope. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. So the beginning of being a leader is to accept the responsibility of that leadership, which is a choice to begin to live my life, not for what I'm getting out of it, but for what my life can do for somebody else. Because if that's what Christ did, he would have stayed in heaven. Because if you stop and think about it, what did he personally get out of it? He ended up back where he was. What he got out of it was you and me. Galatians 5, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. We like that. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love 
serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. Now, I've heard that verse quoted over and over again. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And they use that for being able to accomplish great things. But the context in which that scripture is written is have the same attitude that Christ had towards others. And that's what we just talked about. And here it is. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, for Christ to say, I'm equal with God, he wasn't stealing anything because he was. But he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as we've just said, he did that for you, and not so that he would get something out of it for himself. So the first thing is we must accept the call, and accepting the call means I'm now going to live my life for a different purpose. It's not just for what happens to me. It's now because my life is to be used as an example to help others come through this perilous time, to help others make it, to be an influence to help others to come up into that Christ-like standard that we've all been called to come to. Second thing, in order to be an effective leader in perilous times, we must keep what is happening around us in perspective. Most of us, have never seen anything like this in our lifetime that we're seeing now. And we live in the illusion that the way things have always been, the way things have been, is the way they're always going to be. And when things suddenly start changing, it's very easy to feel as if our whole world is being shaken. And my goodness, this has never happened before. This, everything is falling apart. But all you've got to do is go back a generation just lately happened to watch two old movies about what families went through. One of them was in the United States and the other was in Britain. What families went through during World War II. Watching the one that happened in Britain during what's called the Battle of Britain, which is when, when the, Germans, the German Air Force was bombing London. Not the battlefields, but the downtown cities out in the countries where people's homes were. And you saw these, hearing the sirens and people having to run down in their basements and coming up and finding most of their houses gone. And looking at that, I realized people have been through these kinds of things before. All you've got to do is go back to the first century of the church, the first century of the church. And we'll see some of these things in what Paul writes. Some of what the church went through. If we think our government is becoming more and more ungodly, Caesar was about as ungodly as you can get. The practices that are now happening in our society that may be appalling us and that are being pressured in us, they were common in things we haven't even seen yet. So the fact that the world's turning hostile to the church, 
the fact that the world's standards are, are, are falling apart compared to what we know the Word of God says doesn't mean that the, that the church came through that. That's my point. And when you ha- understand a, a history and a perspective, it helps you realize that what we're going through right now is not unique. Then it also helps you realize God brought the church through that. He's the same God today. He'll bring the church through now. So it's important not only to accept the call, it's also important to have a perspective of what's going on, and not in terms of today or yesterday or last year, but in terms of the history of what's going on before. So we, we must realize that many generations have faced very difficult times. Paul refers to, or whoever wrote Hebrews, refers to them and calls them back because they were beginning to waver. And he called on the back. He says, he says you, you accept joyfully the seizing of all your possessions. That's the government coming in saying, all right, we're taking over everything you have, your house, your bank account. You're now out on the street. And he said, you took that joyfully. That means they were going through those kinds of experiences back then. The interesting thing is, instead of the church falling apart, it became closer. A few years ago is actually when Apostle was here. I was closing out one of the services and this phrase just came to me. And it's really stuck with me since then. Is that we are facing a time, and we're closer today than we were when I said it, when all we're going to have is Jesus and each other. And just as we heard this morning, we need to learn how to get along. We need to take down the differences and the barriers and all those things because in a foxhole, as he said, it doesn't matter whether you're Baptist or whatever you are. As long as you believe in Christ, okay, we're in this together. Those, those separations are a luxury. And we don't have that luxury anymore. So it's time that we begin to prepare ourselves so when these things happen, we're not shocked. Leaders are prepared ahead of time for what's going to happen. God has always shown himself faithful to his people if they would follow him and listen to him. Number three, the first is you must accept the call. The second is you must keep what's happening in perspective. The third thing is to be courageous. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. I'll give you a background here. Moses, who I just referred to, called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. They've seen the miracles that God did through him. They watched the Red Sea parted. They've seen him strike a rock and, and, and water comes out of it. They've seen God, that God's spoken to him. God's given him a pattern and build a tabernacle. They know this man hears from God. God performs miracles at his hand through that staff. Mm -hmm. This is the man that's led us. This is the man we've always turned to. And now as they're about to enter the promised land, he dies. And the second in command now finds himself facing these huge, enormous shoes to fill to complete this call and with a people that have a history of rebellion against God and against their leader. And so it starts out by saying, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' sister, saying, 
Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go to this Jordan, you and all this people. So God renews the call. The call is now passed to you, to the land that I'm giving to the children of Israel. In every place of the soul you tread your feet, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. For the wilderness from this Lebanon, he gives the, he gives the boundaries. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance of the land. Only be strong and very courageous. Now, I've shared this the other night, and I said, when God has to tell you within two verses to only be strong and courageous, there's going to be a reason why you're going to have to be strong and courageous. But notice God didn't say, I hope today you're going to feel courageous. He's commanding courage. Now, if God commands something we can't do, then God is unjust. And we know that God's not unjust. That means God is commanding Joshua to be courageous. That means it is possible for us to be courageous whether we feel courageous or not. So it comes down to this. Courage is not an emotion. Courage is not an emotion. Courage is a decision. It is an act of your will to be obedient to something God's called you to do. So to be courageous in these times is not a result of how you feel because many heroes will tell you, I was afraid and I did it anyway. Courage is not a lack of fear. Courage is acting in spite of the fear. Fear comes by looking at yourself and how things affect you and what's going to happen to me. Courage comes by looking at God and at trusting in Him. I want to give you just several examples here of people facing situations where they were afraid and where they got their courage from. Moses is a great example. Don't turn there, but in Exodus chapter 3, God's just told him. See, we've seen Moses now at the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, Moses was not a man of great courage. God speaks to him and tells him, that my people have cried to me from Egypt to be delivered out of Egypt, and I've heard the cry of their bondage, and I have chosen you to go back and lead them out. Well, the last time they'd seen Moses, he was running away, not from Pharaoh, but from his own people, and he was running away because he had reacted to a situation. He's been 40 years on the backside of the wilderness, knowing doing nothing as far as he knew that was training and preparing him for leadership, even though God was preparing him for leadership. And now God tells him, you're the one I've chosen to answer that call. And Moses' response, as is the response of almost everyone that's heard God's call is, who, me? (laughs) And Moses starts giving him, after a while, excuses. Not only that, I've got to now go tell the elders that you spoke to me out of a bush that didn't burn. And you've told me, they're not out here seeing this experience. I've got to go tell them something that you've spoken to me 
and they haven't heard you speak to me. God's answer, which is always his answer, is, but I will be with you. Joshua, we just read it here in verse 5. I will be with you, I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. So he's not commanding him to be strong and of good courage in his own strength. He's saying, because I am with you and have promised I will not forsake you, on that basis, be strong and of good courage. Oh, one of my favorites is a guy named Gideon in, Joshua, in Judges chapter 6. The Midianites have just come through for the I don't know how many of time. And every time they came through, they, they took everything they had, what they couldn't carry with them, they burned. Gideon is a young man. He's hiding out in a wine press in case they come back again. And down in that wine press, an angel appears to them. Isn't it nice to know God knows right where you are? Yes, yes, yes. You can be right now in your bedroom having heard the news, hiding under the blanket in fear, and God can come under that blanket and talk to you. In fact, I find in my life, He often comes to me at my weakest moments. Because that's often when I know I need Him the most. Down in that wine press, he couldn't be saying to God, I'm your man, I'm your man to deliver. Because the angel says, where did I find you? And why are you here? So the angel appears to him, <laughs> and he says, oh mighty man of valor. I can almost picture Gideon looking around in the wine press to see who, el- who else is in here, who are you talking to? And then God says to him, When he gives him the call, God says to him, Surely I will be with you. Jeremiah, in chapter 1, God's giving him his call. And then God gives him this wonderful, in verse 19, this wonderful assurance. They're going to fight against you. But they shall not win, for I shall deliver you. So that's nice they had that promise. But where's my promise? Well, Hebrews 13.5 says, God says, I will never. In the, in, the, in the Greek, it says never three times. I will never. Now in English, if you say a double negative, it turns it into a positive. But in the Greece, Greek, it just reinforces it. Three times he says, I will never, no, I will never, no, I will never. And actually the, trans, the, the little translations say, leave you alone and utterly cast down. So we have God's promise that in this day and hour that he is with us. So when he commands us to be courageous, we can be courageous. So as Christian leaders, we need to first of all, we need to first of all answer the call. Number two, we need to have a proper perspective of our t- the times we're in. Number three, we need to be courageous. Number four, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and not be distracted. I've been talking lately. I did on the radio the other day. When this happened, I talked to the congregation the other day. Second Chronicles chapter 20 is a great story for our day and time. King Jehoshaphat gets up one day and his, 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 um, his uh, uh, intelligence group comes to him and says, We've got a little problem, King. We've got three nations that are bearing down on us with the purpose of destroying us. It says Jehoshaphat's first reaction was he was afraid. 
See, fear is a natural reaction to threat, but it's what you do with the fear that determines what you can do as a leader. Mm-hmm. So he was afraid, but he, but, he, but he called upon the Lord. And they called a fast, and there's a prayer in there where he calls upon the Lord and says, basically, we've established this place, Solomon did, for when we were getting into trouble like this, that we could come and call upon you. And then he tells them what's happening. And then, then he, cries, he says to this, he says, he says, we've never been in this place before, and we're in danger, but our eyes are on you. It's okay to admit you're afraid. It's okay to say, I don't know what to do. But the key is when you're in that situation is to have your eyes on him. So how do we do that? How do we do that other than to sit here in a men's meeting or in church on Sunday mornings? Yes, our eyes have to be on the Lord. How do we apply that in our life? Well, first of all, Hebrews 12.2 says that looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. John chapter 15, Jesus telling his disciples things to do. He says, but here's the key. I am the vine and you are the branches. You are called to abide in me. A branch has two ends. One end bears the fruit, and the other end's responsibility is stays connected to the vine. And so when what we often do is we're looking, trying to bear fruit out of the fruit end of the branch, when what Jesus told us to do is, no, your focus is to be on your relationship with me. And if you'll stay and maintain a growing relationship with me, I'll produce the fruit through you. So how do we do that? Well, it really comes down to this. It means developing your own personal relationship with Him. Now, I think the attitude we tend to have is, well, yeah, for the women that's easy there because they're so much more spiritual. But what we do as men sometimes, we make the mistake of judging our spirituality by women's spirituality and comparing ourselves with them. And the women sometimes help us with that. But God made us differently than them. And God put us in the position of leaders because He's made us to function somewhat differently. And so, but the problem is we can develop this attitude, well, that's more for the women to talk about Jesus and love Him that way and that ooey-gooey kind of stuff. And so we kind of look at God more from a doctrine point of view and from a teaching point of view instead of an intimate relationship point of view. But everything the apostles shared this morning about our relationship with each other and the need of each other, I learned a long time ago there's a direct parallel between the way I relate to to other people and the way I relate to God. The way I relate to my wife and the way I relate to God. Mm -hmm. See, I can't be selective. I can't just be open to a person and not also be open to God. In the same way, I can't be open to God and then close to people. It doesn't, you're either open or you're not. And so, so you can, as men, in fact, many men, have developed a close, intimate, in fact, the men I've been reading after lately, the people I've been reading after lately, who have that kind of relationship with God, are all men. So we've got to get over that obstacle that, that it's hard for men to do that. It's not belief in a doctrine or a principle that will cause you to be strong and leading others. But it's a living, vital, growing, personal relationship with Jesus as your Savior and with God as your Father. 
And most Christians today, and especially most Christian men, lack this personal, growing, intimate relationship. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the teachings of the Word of God. And we love to hear them. But where is your personal relationship? Because that's evidenced by your passion for Him. One of the books I've been reading is by Brother Tozer, The Pursuit of God. I'm probably in my sixth reading of it right now. And he has this comment in there. He says, God is no more real. He's talking about for Christians. God is no more real to most of us, no more real than he is to to non-Christians. So many Christians go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. The problem is that will not work in perilous times. The Apostle Paul warns that in these latter days, many, not some, many are going to fall away. And I believe one of the main reasons they're going to fall away is because their relationship with God has been based on loyalty to a doctrine and a principle. I believe in the principle. I'm committed to the principle. But under pressure, it's the relationship that holds you in. I remember years ago counseling a, a, a gentleman and his wife. And the shame was that he was a pastor. And they were having serious marital problems. And one of the questions I'll often ask when the real tension gets going, and you know, she does this and he does that, blah, 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 and I just sit back and let this go on for a while. And I said, let me ask you a question. Why did you marry her? I mean, you chose her, didn't you? Why did you marry her? What I'm trying to bring out in him or in her was, oh, I loved her. I'm trying to call them back. This couple, I asked that question, and they both looked at me and they said, well, God told us to marry each other. I said, okay, and? I'm looking for, she was beautiful. I mean, she turned me on. I'm looking for this. I never heard it. And I realized what happened here is under pressure, under pressure, the fact that 10 years ago God called them, that had faded. They were trying to live out obedience to a principle under pressure and they couldn't do it. Not only that, if we're going to lead and we're going to influence others, what are you leading them into and what are you influencing them to have? Principles aren't that contagious, but relationships are. You get around somebody that loves the Lord, I mean, it rubs off. You want to know them. Maybe the reason evangelism has become so hard for the church today is we don't have somebody to talk to them about that we're in love with. But what we're trying to do is share principles and doctrines and ideas and concepts that has no passion in us either. When you're in love with somebody, you can't help but talk about them. And when, whether they understand you or not, they'll know you know her and you're in love with her. They'll know that much. That she's real to you. Maybe the reason evangelism becomes so hard for the church is because we don't, we have a God and a Lord that we believe in, but we don't know. What caused the early Christians to stay strong in difficult times was they could not deny the one they knew. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
This is the Apostle Paul at the end of his life having gone through things you and I can't begin to imagine. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. No. I'm in the wrong place. where he says, I'm, I know... In, oh, here it is. It's, it's a 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason I've also suffered these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed. Not just I believe him. I know whom I believed and am persuaded. You don't become persuaded on doctrine. You become persuaded by experience. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have in committed to him until that day. It means placing him first place in your life as your highest priority. And that shows not by what we say, but the priorities of our life are showed by where we spend our time and where we spend our money. Where he stands in our life is also shown by whether we obey his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. How is it developed? There's no shortcut. Is simply developed by spending time with him. But you know, that doesn't have to be a huge block at the beginning of your day. I used to do that, and then I'd go throughout the rest of my day and wouldn't think about him. But I'm learning as I go through my day to involve him in everything I'm doing. Talk to him about this. Something comes up, I don't know what to do. Lord, I need your help in this. Something comes up and I, I want to pull back because I don't know the answer. Lord, you have an answer for this. And I step into it. It also involves meditating on his word. The next thing to develop, being, developing us being a strong leader in perilous times. <laughs> this is something we've really kind of forgotten in this day and age. And it's really simple. We must be living right in God's eyes. Yes. We must be living right in God's eyes. Psalm 34. Beloved Psalm. But listen to this. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. The poor cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. We like that. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. Let's go down to um, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, so there's no want or lack to those who fear him. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now, we've used that scripture to say, well, in Christ, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. That's true. But it also refers to how you're living your life. We can't be living our life any way we want to, doing whatever we want to, because the world does it, and half the Christians around us are doing, but it's not right in God's eyes and then expect to have confidence that God is going to be there. He's going to love us, but be there and fight for us when we're not living right ourselves. It's time for the church to start living right. That's just really simple things, which we're not going to take the time this morning to get into. You cannot be willfully disobeying God's commandments 
and expect to be succeeding as a leader in perilous times. And by the way, what are you leading people into? What are you influencing people to do? The next thing, and this is a word you very rarely hear in church, although it was mentioned this morning. It's becoming almost a dirty word. We must develop discipline. Isn't that what the word disciple comes from? We must develop discipline. Preparation from war in the natural world always involves basic training, developing discipline. Discipline is making yourself do something you don't want to do because you need to do it. To develop discipline so that we're not governed by what our flesh wants to do, but we're able to follow orders from our commander. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writing to a church that was having serious problems with discipline. First, what did I say? First Corinthians, yeah, nine. Verse twenty-four. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win or obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. They do it so they can obtain a perishable crown. But we're going after an imperishable crown. Therefore, this is how I run, not with uncertainty. In other words, there's a goal, there's a focus to what I do in life. This way, this I fight, not as one who just beats the air. But I discipline my body. I discipline my body and bring it under subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I want you to be unaware that our fathers... Now, chapter 10 is a different chapter in my Bible, but it's a continuation of the same thought. Moreover, brethren, I want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the same, all under the same cloud. They all passed through the same three. See, all were baptized. In other words, they all had the same background. They all had the same start. They all had the same call. They all had the same opportunity... All were baptized into Moses in the cloud. All, there was a God's presence was there leading them all. All drank the same spiritual drink, which was water that God brought out of the rock. All ate of the same spiritual food, which was the manna that God... Though God gave them all the same opportunity. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things became examples for us. So this is not just a Bible story. This is in here as an example to us of why Paul says he had to keep himself under control. Yes. Verse 7. And do not become... Verse 6 again. For these things became for our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, should not become idolaters some as they were, as, of course, we don't have idols, do we? We don't have little statues in our corner. No, instead they're about 52 inches with speakers on the side with our favorite sports team and our, you know, all over our shirts and things like that. We don't have idols, though, do we? Okay. All right. Um, 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So their idolatry was not just things in their corner. It was the, way they, the things they used to enjoy their life with. Let us not commit sexual immorality, immorality as some of them did. And we could go on. I don't have time to go on through all of these things. And that's where he ends. Verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take care lest he falls. Okay. So we've got to develop discipline in our lives. And finally, we must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll end with this. First ending. No. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul's testimony. Verse 8. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Now think of that. The Apostle Paul was perplexed at times. didn't know what to do. But we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We've been struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus Christ may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. See, Paul didn't live for himself. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Why did he want the life of Jesus manifested in his mortal flesh? So that they could imitate him the way he was imitating Christ. Paul said, I went through all this so that you could see Christ in me. So that death is working in us, but life in you. I lay my my life down so that you might have life. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to it is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we speak, knowing this. How could he do all this? How could he go through all of this in this time that was far more perilous than what we're in at this point? How could he go through this? Knowing this, verse 14, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For I love the New King James, I love the, the New American Standard better. For this momentary light affliction. Just think what he went through. And Paul's perspective was, this is a momentary light affliction. How could he say that? He's working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. So what you're facing right now, whatever the threat, whatever the perils, the call to be a leader right now, there is a reward for this. There is a glory that's going to come because you faithfully carried out your responsibility. And Paul could go through the difficult times, the per- being perplexed, the fears, all the stuff he talks about in other places. He could go through it because his eyes were not on what was happening to him or what was happening around him. The eyes were on why he was going through his focus on what he was to do going through this and the reward that was coming. But to see that, you've got to see it by faith. You've got to see that by faith. And that's what the next verse says. For we, while we look not at the things that are seen, 
but at the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary. What we're going through, what we're going to go through, what we're facing, what we're going to face, it's temporary. But the things that are not seen, the reward, just to stand before the Lord, having look in my eyes and hear those words, I know what you went through. I know the challenges. I know all the things that came in on you the times at night you were up. But well done. Well done. Well done. So when I have those times, I'm tempted to throw it in. When everything around me is screaming at you, it's not going to happen and it's going to get worse, I come back to that. What's it going to be like to stand before him and have my head go down? Whatever it costs to be able to look in his eyes, I'm willing to pay. And that's the motivation. And that's why he goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So we're called in perilous times to be leaders. A leader, first of all, accepts the call. And that's the question I believe that God's asking each of us today. Are you willing to accept the call? Say, well, what is it? Very often you won't find out what it is until you're willing to accept it. Because until you're willing to accept it, you're hiding from it which means your eyes are closed. You don't want to see it. When you accept the call, all kinds of things begin to happen. That's when God begins to get involved with you and show you things and teach you and prepare you. So the question today, are you willing to accept the call? Am I willing to accept the call? Let us not be like the people in the days of Isaiah where God said to him when he was being called, I'm calling to a people that have eyes to see but they don't see have ears to hear, but they don't hear. And their hearts are hardened and dull, lest I should be able to reach in them and use them. I suggest to you that we stand at a very critical time in the history of the church. But it's a glorious time. It's a time when things are culminating. It says to us in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 that there's a great cloud of witnesses that have already run their leg of the race that have always already gone before us, that first generation who, who suffered martyrdom and all kinds of things for just the gospel to be spread, and the next generations that came after them. They've all gone through. They've all run their course, and they're all waiting, but they're not sitting up there <coughs> drinking iced tea and waiting for their reward. They're looking over the banister of heaven because I believe we are the final leg of the race, that they're there to cheer us on, the Pastor Sam's, and others that you've known that have been instrumental in your life that have gone on before you. Maybe it's family members that mentored you and people that you knew that have gone on. They're rooting for you. They're watching to see what you do. They're cheering you on because this is the hour. This is the hour that the church is here for. This is the culmination, I believe, of all these things. And it depends on us whether we're willing to answer the call. Yes, it's perilous times, but that's why we're here for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the issues that are in our own lives, in our families, finances, 
places where you've placed us of employment and maybe we don't have a job and we're looking for a job. Wherever the pressures are of life that are pressing in on us and trying to distract us and pull us off track, we ask you today, Father, to hear the voice of your Spirit calling us to a higher calling, to lift our eyes off of the circumstances of our life and open our ears to hear the voice of your Spirit calling us that in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the difficulty, you are there with us. We are those mighty men of valor hiding in the winepress that you are calling to be leaders. And you have promised that if we'll answer the call, you will be with us, that you will take us step by step. You will prepare us. You will strengthen us. You will guide us. You will not fail us. Help us, Lord, today as we prepare to go out to answer the call. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And amen. 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 Amen.